And welcome to the Temple of Blair episode AA. That's right, we're doing the alphabet again. This is a conversation with IRD's very own Alan Becker. So IRD is Important Record Distribution, which morphed into Sony Red in the 90s, which is now uh, The Orchard. So I was going to say that Alan is very central to the Roadrunner story, given his position as the distributor in the US for the label. But the fact of the matter is, he's actually quite central to a lot of fucking metal label stories, as you're about to learn. Uh, he was there at the very sort of genesis of when it all kicked off and exploded in the United States. We're talking like immediately post heavy metal parking lot metal America. Uh, this is a really interesting story for that reason, as it gives you a good insight into that arm of the business and exactly what Case and the rest of the guys were doing and how they leveraged the distribution arm to meet their goals in the 1990s. Bit of housekeeping up front. This conversation took place over a few days. So if you're watching on the video, it might be fairly obvious because it goes from day to night to day to night and so on and so forth. Um, on the audio, it should be all right, but uh, you'll be all right following it either way. Anyway, let's jump right into it. One, two, fuck shit up. You know, everyone's rethinking their business, you know, based on the pandemic. Everybody's yeah. looking to improve uh, what's happening, and everybody's taking a close look at things like distribution and do I have the right partner? Uh, yeah. Is there someone else out there that, you know, that's maybe doing things differently and, and uh, could be a better partner? Hmm. You know, the problem for us is that we don't own our content. So um, labels are free to do whatever they want. (laughs) (laughs) So what I'm saying is, you know, they can do it themselves, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, accessing physical distribution now and digital distribution is um, for a company like, you know, they can do it themselves. You know, also I have a new phenomena uh, you have now the venture capitalists, the banker, I call them disruptors, who are very much interested in um, owning musical assets, m- music content, right? Yeah. Because, you know, wherever you turn, somebody's saying our industry is going to grow to uh, $45 billion by 2030. Spotify mm-hmm. is going to have a billion paid subscribers. So our industry is looking like a really reliably safe place to invest. In. So there's a lot right. of money coming into it from uh, from the point of view of buying publishing assets and in some cases buying actually the recording masters, right? So, um, so labels the other day. Are, Shakira sold all her masters the other day. This, this is happening all the time, right? Neil Young sold his. Bob Dylan sold his to Universal. So the the so there's the um, value of music is 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 higher than ever, and and it's. Uh, Mm. And it's a great time for, for, as far as that's concerned. But for me, it's a headache because now I have a new kind of competitor. Yeah, it's um, – I'm just saying to Ed, it's kind of – it feels like we've been in this weird sort of streaming purgatory for so long where there's so little revenue coming from the IP itself and from the actual product going out the door. Um, it feels like where the, innov- the innovation's quite close. Someone's going to come around and make it more of a retail-oriented business again. Um or at least more so than it feels like it has been in the last 10 years. But, um, you know, interestingly, interestingly with is that, you know, because they're in the rock field, uh, and, you know, and guitar driven music and blues and, and rock and, and, and so on that, um, you know, they do a lot of physical business as well. So yeah. that became a big part of our presentation is, um, you know, how we uh, try to stay ahead of any Mm -hmm. adversity in our business, you know, when, when physical distribution plants are having a hard time dealing Mm -hmm. with it, 
you know, how we might make some changes there. And, and uh, that's very appealing to Ed. Yeah. So yeah. I, did you talk to Ed earlier or are you doing it later? I talked to Ed earlier. Okay. Because he was obviously a roadrunner from 83 in some, oh, 82 with Betram. Um, yeah. So it was, oh, sorry, Bertus, not Betram. Um, so he had dealings with them in the 80s. And that's like a blind spot to most of the staff who are still, you know, operating in the industry today, like let's say Doug Keogh and, and, and people like that. Not a lot of people know what happened in those years, apart from obviously Ed, who was there. So yeah. I thought I need to mine him for some information. But, no, uh, yeah, because I recall the very start of our Roadrunner business was mm-hmm. um, we were importers, right? We were importers. We were important record distributors. Mm-hmm. And we started in um, 70, 79. Uh-huh. It was when the official started, right? I came in 1980. So we were just importing their records. You know, mm-hmm. we're not we're not distributing the Roadrunner label. We were just importing records from their Dutch distributor called Bertus. Yep. Right? And uh, in, like I said earlier, we were the, um, we were the hard rock uh, experts, the hard rock company, right? You know, at mm-hmm. that time, it was just a, a, you know, an amazing time because, you know, you had this, musically uh, musical explosions happening of disco and hip hop and rap. And then you had something, and then you had this underground of heavy metal that was just forming. And this was like all that post sex pistols. It came out of the punk mm. and, um, you know, hardcore scene. And, you know, there was, there was this new kind of thrash metal and, and um, we were like, we became like the experts in that, but we, we were just like, you know, we didn't know what we we're doing. We we're just importing the records that we liked. Sure. The idea of distributing a label that came came later, but anyway, I, I, no, it's I'm cool. Probably, you kind of led exactly into what I was going to ask. So, why were you guys the main rock and metal guys? Was the um, from my conversation with Richard, he mentioned that there was six key distributors, um, and there was a trend that not a lot of them knew what to do with metal. So, I'm interested in one why important profess to being the rock metal uh, people. Yes. And how would it differ? How would the day-to-day differ in pushing those records against a pop, a disco, a rap, or something like that? Well, it, it all stems from the, um, the, you know, that UK uh, explosion, and I, I call it at that time of the Sex Pistols and all of that sort of post-Sex Pistols music that was exploding out of London, mm. the Buzzcocks, the Clash, the Jam, and so on. And it was a real desire to... Um, um, in America, because the word was now getting out about all these great bands via whatever, you know, meet Rolling Stone magazine started to do, you know, articles about, you know, the Sex Pistols, the most outrageous thing in the world and, mm-hmm. and all these bands. And, and the, you know, a lot of the music was was really was really good. Uh, the team of people that we had became experts, rock, were rock experts. Mm-hmm. And the team of people that we had working there, there was salesmen and buyers and, and, and so on, were musicians, you, you mm-hmm. know, you know, at night and, you know, during the day we worked there and they're guitar players. And it was, uh, and, and it just came from our fan. We, we were just fans of guitar driven music, mm-hmm. starting with that punk stuff, but it quickly became, uh, you know, expanded into, you know, that, un- that metal underground at that time of, um, Oh God, neat records and, you know, uh, Venom and, and, and Raven, 
Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, and and groups like Discharge from Clay Records that were you know kind of metal but punk at the like kind of it was a combination of things. Um, the retailers that we were selling to, which were just local, we were a local distributor at the time, not certainly not a national distributor at all. Okay. We catered to the local record shops. I mean, at that time, local record stores were. I mean, this is pre-internet, right? Pre-everything, mm-hmm. right? This is eighty, and um, so we, you know, we we naturally we had a very musically we had a musical passion for rock and uh, and hard rock things uh, just from our staff, right? Mm-hmm. We we didn't have hip hop people, we didn't have disco people. We didn't have alternative rock people, though alternative rock was just like forming at the time. Mm-hmm. It was hard rock. That w- that was our thing. But what really happened that exploded the whole business for us was one of the retailers we sold to in New Jersey had a had a, a, a retail outlet called Rock and Roll Heaven in Woodbridge, New Jersey. His name mm-hmm. was Johnny Zazula or John Zazula. And John Zazula, along with a guy named Bleaker Bob, Bleaker Bob in New York, John Zazula in New Jersey, Every Friday night, religiously, every Friday, they'd come to our shop, which was out by John F. Kennedy Airport, and they would, uh, and we would just get the hottest shipment of imports off, you know, from the plane, and it would went through customs, and we had them at our door step. Mm-hmm. And during the week, we would save special things for them, and they would buy the the imports, you know, the, uh, uh, that were the hottest of, at that time. They would buy, you know, Judas Priest picture discs or. Tigers of Pantang, a live 12 in single, a 12 in single with a live B-side or uh, maybe ACDC had something new. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then it was more, you know, uh, more underground bands like Iron Maiden and, and Tigers of Pantang would have special releases. And so they would take, they, so Bleaker Bob, John Zazula would come to the, come to the, the storefront that we have in, in this industrial park and they'd buy the latest products to take back to their stores and have them for the weekend. So the kids came with their, they got paid on Friday. They came and they buy, you know, the hottest new things. Yep. One day John Zazula comes into our shop and says, you guys are now, and we had just started to, um, we're importing records, but in some cases we would uh, help, not by importing records. We actually manufacture these records in the U.S. for the labels that we were uh, distributing for um, these titles. So we started to manufacture records. And John Zazula said, listen, I want to start a record label, right? I have a couple of artists that I want to put out on my record label. Will you help me manufacture and distribute my record label? I'm calling it Megaforce Records. And I have this tape over here from uh, Metallica. I want to put out this Raven album that I'm licensing from Neat Records. And then I have these friends of mine, Man of War, that have a band over here. I want to help. I want you to put out these three records for me. And we did. We liked John very much. He was a great customer, but paid cash, very colorful guy. And we put out these three records. And uh, not knowing that what a Metallica was or, you know, and, and, and Johnny thought actually that Raven was going to be the thing that was going to drive the whole, um, you know, the whole label business. Right. Mm-hmm. And Metallica just has just was something that showed up. And Johnny was an ambitious guy. You know, I think Metallica had already put out a song on Brian Slagle's Metal Blade Records from his Metal Correct. Massacre days. So anyway, so, you know, here's this, you know, the famous story. Megaforce Records releases these three records. Mm-hmm. Metallica just immediately becomes something very sought after. Metallica just becomes something that is um, 
the word of mouth, it's like, you know, kids having telephones coming out of their ears, meaning that um, there was no internet. There was no, you know, there, <laughs> there was no way to spread the news. You know, it was just yeah. kids telling other kids, you got to hear this thing called Metallica, kill them all. <laughs> Metallica. So, you know, kids would be running into record stores. Well, I, I want to buy Metallica. And this record store would say, I don't know, what, what is a Metallica? I never heard of it. Oh, it's, a, it's this new band, and it's, it's on this label called uh, uh, Megaforce. And, um, and, and the stores would, would then fi- figure out, find out how to get this label's music from this little distribution company, Important Records, in New York. We get these phone calls. But now the phone calls were coming, like, furious. We couldn't right. keep up with it. Our little space was just like, we couldn't keep up with the demand of Metallica's album, Kill Em All. Not Raven, not Man of War. <laughs> okay, so all of a sudden, so Metallica becomes this thing, and then we're just like saying, holy shit, we're scratching our heads. It's like, you know what? This is, this is a thing. We have to uh, turn our attention to this new music and forget about all these other like cool little alternative things from, you know, you know we were putting out records from... We were licensing things, like real alternative rock things. They weren't really selling much. So we said, we're going to start a heavy metal label, too. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to call it? I remember being in a meeting and somebody says, well, we got it's got to be like Megaforce. It's got to be something, you know, hard, army, military, tough, green, camouflage. Right. So I said, well, why don't we call it Armed and Ready Records? I thought I was really smart at the time. So then the next, the next person says, well, what about combat? So combat, yep. and that was the boss. That was Barry Cobrin, who was the mm-hmm. boss at the time. So it became Combat Records. And Quit made a logo with the yellow typeface and the green background. Which <laughs> remarkably like uh, Combat Rock from The Clash. Right. The first three bands that are signed are Megadeth, yep. right? Exodus, and at the time, Brian Slagle was looking for a partner for a band that he signed called Slayer. He had put out two records um, via Metal Blade, and his distributor at the time on the West Coast was called Green World. Mm-hmm. Green World. It was like, you know, that was an important West Coast indie distributor at the moment. Mm-hmm. So um, he put out their first record, which was um, uh, uh, Show No Mercy. Mm-hmm. Right. Then the EP Haunting the Chapel. He put those out himself. And then the Slayer Hell Awaits record is now done. And he just was unhappy with his situation at Green World at the time. Mm -hmm. And so he was unhappy with the the work done on those two first two Slayer records. Mm -hmm. So it was that point where with Slayer Hell Awaits, he thought that this needed more of a team effort, uh, a bigger um, you know, a bigger push, a bigger, um, you, you know, a bigger, uh, a better plan, mm-hmm. be- better executed. So he reached out to the East Coast where we were already very established in that genre yeah. and made a deal with um, Steve Sinclair and Barry Cobrin, who were the um, oversaw the label Combat yeah. to put the Slayer Hello Waits record in, in a joint venture with combat so it was like a combat metal blade or a metal blade combat okay albums so right there at that time when combat starts to get off the ground it's three bands it's megadeth uh it's um slayer and it's exodus from the west coast so immediately we have 
several of the biggest metal bands in the world, followed up soon after by Johnny Z signing Anthrax. Yep. Right. So, so Megaforce has Anthrax and Metallica. We mm-hmm. have Slayer and Megadeth on combat. So does Megaforce and Com- so now it is um, now taking over our lives, <laughs> and this is now all we're doing is trying to keep up with the demand of these records. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we needed help. So we st- we we um, we started using local distributors around the United States to help us and that was a flop because nobody would pay us and we got tons of returns back because nobody knew how to market these records we just had a certain expertise because we had both combat and megaforce anyway so hey we got our act together we 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 opened up local offices around the country in la and in atlanta and in in, uh, cleveland and we started servicing retail no no nothing digital (laughs) it's just retailers of uh, brick and mortar retailers and um what what happened there that really took our company into like you know the stratosphere was now local metal labels from all over the world were contacting us and saying listen you guys are like killing it over there um this is digby from uh, uh, from earache records digby pearson yep will you will you distribute my label Earache, and we said, mm-hmm. okay, it's more stuff like what we're we're having a, a you know a, a home run with, you know. And now there's um, you know, Carl Walterbach from Noise Records in Germany, right, with with yeah. his roster. Uh, you know, later on it was Century Media, but I'm just thinking those early days. And of course, it was Case Wessels and Roadrunner who said, "Will you help me distribute my label?" And we said, so he was part of that cohort of people from Europe saying, Hey, right. But we certainly knew of Roadrunner because they were, uh, we were importing their records. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think of those early bands. Oh God. Um, Merciful Fate, Satan, King Diamond. Mm -hmm. Was there Bulldozer? No. What am I thinking? Bulldozer were one. Uh, Everything that he he brought to us sold great. Yeah, we couldn't keep anything in stock of any of this stuff because people were just uh, had such a hunk. People, uh, we didn't realize that people actually knew more about these bands in Europe than we thought. Mm-hmm. So that when we brought them in, they just flew off the shelf. And then we had a you know we 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 caught up with the mm-hmm. demand. But as I said, you know those two labels, Megaforce and Combat, then attracted every hard rock and heavy metal label from all over the world from Sweden and Denmark and Norway and, you know, and every, you know, so what happened was in addition to, we were doing other music as well, you know, you know, at that time in the mid eighties, the alternative rock, you know, scene in the United States was really exploding too. I mean, you know, the reason why the company important became big in the eighties. And I mean, everybody was doing great in the eighties. It was a financial, it was like Ronald Reagan was our president and it was a very like boom time. Mm Mm-hmm. But so much music was uh, was just exploding, you know, like in Seattle with Sub Pop. Yep. And then in, uh, y- you know, so in, in Minnesota, it was um, Twin Tone Records with the replacements. And then in New York was uh, Matador Records. I mean, you know, the whole indie music scene was like developing in the 80s, along with our like penchant for hard rock and metal. And, um, and Roadrunner took advantage of it and they opened up their office at some point. Mm-hmm. 86 
started signing their own bands as well. Local, you know, USA bands and, uh, and, let's, and uh, right. Do, let's do the, let's do the mechanics of it then. Like, let's pretend I'm an infant because if, if I understand it correctly, before they opened up their own office, what they do is that you'd import the record, but then it'd be released. Would it be released in the States on license through typically something like Megaforce? So it'd be like Merciful no, Face, no, Melissa. No, in the case of Road, well, in, in the case of Roadrunner, what we did first was we'd have we'd make a finished product deal with the label, and we would exclusively be sent their products, right? Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't be doing anything else but sending their music and now the, by via import to yep. us, and we would exclusively distribute their imported product, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Until such time where it became such a hindrance for them and a co- it was so costly for them just to keep sending over material, they said, well, wait a minute, is it just the cost of freight and shipping and customs? We need to manufacture those records in the U.S. So it, it became a finished product, a situation from, from Holland, from where, where are they based? In, in, in Holland, yes, in the Netherlands. And then, um, and then when they opened their office in 86, they started to manufacture those same records here and then mm-hmm. signing their own bands, right? I think Monty m- might have been there at the time. I don't. I don't Eighty-seven. Remember. Right. So Monty. now Monty's there signing bands, and and um. Right. So now, right, and then you had the USA, right? So when Roadrunners, then you had Metal Blade, on the West Coast, right? But let's stick to Roadrunner. Okay. So yeah, yeah I know, I know you're going to say they do the same. They'd send their stuff over to Roadrunner in Benelux, and they would distribute there. So that's how that's how Roadrunner came to have quite a good licensing arm and quite a good licensing reputation because they were doing the same as what they, you were doing. But exactly, they yeah. they really benefited because they had the pick of the litter from the U.S. to put out on their Roadrunner label in Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. Is there a reason? That, for, I, I, maybe it's not a question for yourself, but I, I wonder if I wonder if there was a reason for that. Like, why was Roadrunner so equipped to distribute in the Netherlands or in Europe in general so effectively? They they had a head start in case Wessels and the company called Burtis, their local distributor were very close. And, um, and so they got a head start on everybody. So that that's, that's why it worked for them. Now in the UK, just like we started combat records as a reaction to Megaforce, in the UK, a label called Music for Nations was formed. Yeah. Uh, forgot the guy's name. What's his name? Shit. Who's the early? Uh, yeah, Martin Hooker. So a guy named Martin Hooker starts a label in England called Music for Nations. And, and, mm-hmm. and he, he said, wait a minute, Roadrunner can't have the pick of the litter. I want to have, I want to license those records too. Yeah. And Music for Nations was more of a partner to, uh, to our, to important record distributors than, than, than than Roadrunner was so Roadrunner right. we were just we just had a you know a um it was uh, it was strictly business but the founder of our company important record distributors opened up Music for Nations so then Music for Nations started to get um get, have an advantage because we were okay. referring things his way versus Roadrunner okay. yeah right okay a um, real heyday I mean this was a you this was a real heyday for that the, the that that new wave of British heavy metal. And then the uh, explosion of the underground of USA metal with Metal Blade and Shrapnel Records on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then the opening of Roadrunner here, along with Combat and Megaforce. Roadrunner opened here was, you know, was good, good competition to, to them all. Richard, Richard uh, said that in your capacity as in you personally, um, that's important, you vetted and kind of like critiqued the labels that would come to you. 
to try and assess their viability as an actual partner, um, as well as doing some kind of A&R-esque ta- um, sort of tasks around some of the bands. Can you tell me, like, what would what would the feasibility criteria be for a label? Like, what would you turn away? What would you bring in, you know? Well, uh, what, again, what would right, a good label look like? Right, so now we're attracting everything hard rock and heavy metal. Anything, everything. Mm-hmm. Every, you know, a guy that's, that in his bedroom started a label, uh, I'll call, you know, Alan at um, Important Record Distributors and we'll get a deal and we'll get started. That, um, yes, there is a criteria. You know, you ha- you, there's, a, there's a financial responsibility. Uh, the music has to, the music speaks the loudest, right? So the music is, uh, you know, first and foremost, always, but you have to know what you're getting yourself into financially because it's very easy to overspend and go out of business. Yeah. Okay. And then there has to be a capacity to, um, uh, provide certain tools, you know, in the way of um, just just be able to manufacture the records, have money to manufacture the records. I mean, we couldn't fund all these things. I mean, we weren't making, you know, you know, stockpiles of money. So the labels that came on board had to have certain, you know, criteria, you know, the music had to make us feel something, had to find some financial wherewithal, and to understand how to create some demand. Mm-hmm. That was, all, it's always been the case, because again, you know, we don't own our content. So, we distribute a labels, one's music for two or three years. If we don't do a good job, the label could then leave. So mm-hmm. we ha- we definitely had a customer service sort of responsibility to um, to our partners that we couldn't bring in a company that was going to either take time away from Metal Blade or or Roadrunner. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, that wouldn't be right. And then we have to make sure that this label coming in would be able to get the attention of our company so that they would have a good experience mm-hmm. and not fall on their face or tell anybody, you know, Hey, how's it going with important records and Alan? And they would say, Oh, I thought it was going to be great, but this guy, Alan, he's an asshole and I can't get him on the phone. And because I didn't have time for him because we just did too much. So we tried to be an indie distributor that, you know, didn't just bring in everything that we could because we could, we tried to be a little discerning, do it with some scrutiny. I got a good reputation for making the right bets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Richard was like, you know, how did you know that that label was going to do that? And, you know, so Richard was um, very, uh, he, we got along because he said, like, how do you, how do you know that? He was a very smart finance guy. Yeah. And really, you know, and, and when Sony bought the company in 1991, we were really on our ass. So Sony sent Richard over there, like he's a, like a fix, Mr. Fixer, fix up. All right. So he's the guy that they sent to a company they just bought to find out what's going on there and fix it because they're like hemorrhaging money. <laughs> so Richard came in, we met, and we had an instant chemistry because I was so different than him. I wasn't a finance; I was strictly emotionally, you know, passionate yeah, yeah, about yeah. it. And, and like I said, you know, so I developed a good reputation for being kind of like a um, like this guy is a great A and R man for record labels. I mean, he's right. not in the studio making picking songs and matching producers with artists, but he's very good at at meeting with a label and understanding if these guys will <laughs> succeed or not. Right. So we all so we got along from that point of view, and he helped us a great deal. And I was his kind of point man, mm-hmm. and you know, he when he needed to make certain changes in the company, he'd always bring me along on a trip. So that I'd be the nice guy and he would be the bad guy. When he, when, when Richard would say, you know, we're <laughs> going to have to change the way we do our business with you, Mr. Label. Uh, yeah. We're going to have to now distribute your music exclusively. 
uh, it can't be a non-exclusive situation because, you know, we end up taking the returns back of the mistakes in this one and there's no way we can control pricing. There was no harmony in pricing. So when I was there with him, like he would be the bad, and then the label would say, we can't do that. We, we need to sell to everybody. He said, no, 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 no. You have to, you have to make a commitment to us. And then they say, Alan, what do you think? What should we do? <laughs> and I said, listen, this is the best way to do it. We need to stay together and really build this thing. This guy, Richard, is a smart guy. He knows what he's talking about. Anyway, so, you know. <laughs> and we he were sat good, next to you the entire time. Like We were, we were a good team, uh, but we didn't pull the wool over anybody's eyes. You know, we were just, you know, we, we just felt that um, we would be the best uh, opportunity, the best odds for success for you, Mr. Label, Epitaph Records or... I remember some of the meetings, you know, uh, not everybody went with us. Some labels just said, you know, screw you, we're leaving. And we're going to go to this new company, ADA, that's forming. And that's mm-hmm. what they did. So labels like, like you said, Matador and Touch and Go. I don't know if you know the indie label scene like you probably do. Um, but um, not really. Not massively. Right. So, right but, so when Richard came into the company, he did an amazing job of making a business out of it. Mm-hmm. He relied on me for like musical, like to, 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 point out the things that we need to do and who to do it with and when to right. do it. And, and he was smart enough to, you know, and, and, and he was smart enough to really sell it very well. And I would just be there to, to be the guy, Alan, what do you think? Uh, label? I think we should do it. And, so, you know, so that's how it, how it worked. So uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'm just, Oh no, it. everything, everything's gold. Everything's gold. All the I'm rabbit holes a are good. A bit of uh, a little background of that situation. So that was the year of 1991. Sony bought the company. They bought half the company in 91 and they bought the other half in 94. Yeah. And that's when it, that's the transition right. from IRD Richard, to Red. Right. And Richard, who was a finance guy that Sony sent around the country fixing companies, business affairs, found his passion. You know, he loved the music distribution business and he made a whole career out of going from us up to the Sony mainstream company and then from there, another music gig. And then he ran the, the uh, A2, he ran the organization, the trade organization that represents labels. So he made a life. When he came to us, he'll always say this about me, Alan, you're, you changed my life. <laughs> and, you know, and I put him on a different course of his, like he, he was not going in this direction, but after we had that experience together, mm-hmm. that was it for him. So we, we share a lot of memories and good times. So, dialing back just before the U.S. office opens, um, Roadrunner. For, for Roadrunner. Yeah. Um, Case isn't coming over to New York every two weeks, is he? At this point, he he's going. He's managing his affairs through Jules Kurz. Or Kurz well, Jules, Jules, Jules was his attorney. His his uh, you know we had our attorney. Jules was uh, the Roadrunner attorney, and we made our distribution deals together. He did all the band. He did the artist management. He did the artist deals and he did the mm-hmm. distribution deals with us. So we'd always be like every two years or so, we'd be battling with him. And what, what was he like then? What was your impression of him? Um, he was a little, he, you know, he's a short guy. He was um, like a pit bull, you know, very, very um, focused. Um, uh, he wasn't difficult, but, you know, he was um, difficult. <laughs> My, he, he was just a very good advocate for for Case, his point. You know, like if, if Case wanted a lower distribution fee, right? That's a typical question. Require, yeah, distribution yeah, yeah. deal is up. I'm paying 20%. I'll, I'll, I'd rather pay 18%. So, okay, mm-hmm. so, so he would be just very um, 
um, you know, very tough negotiator said, well, you know, uh, if you don't give us this, this lower fee, you know, there's, we, there's another distributor down the road that we might be taking him. You know, he was a very good advocate mm-hmm. and we were doing so much business with Roadrunner at the time that he could be, you know, more of a, a, a stronger uh, figure, uh, you know, so he had more leverage yep. than most lawyers. So we didn't like that. <laughs> the fact that he was, you know, could push us around. Yeah, and yeah. he did. But in the end, you know, in the end, you know, you you make a deal, you shake hands, you hug, and life goes on, right? And he, <laughs> you know, and he and he gets to tell case. Well, I beat him up. I got two percent lower fee. Yeah, yeah. So he Sorry. was a very he was a very strong advocate for case, and he he under, you know he case liked him very much because he really understood the value of Roadrunner, especially the value of Roadrunner to this to us. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and and he would use that leverage to beat us up a little bit. It was fine. <laughs> Let's That's the story um, of my life again. You know, we don't own our content, so you know, we yeah, have yeah. to every two or three years deal with uh, a, a renewal, an extension, a uh, a new agreement. And uh, yeah, you can push back and say no, we're not going to give you that lower fee. Mm-hmm. They could leave. Mm-hmm. So there's always that tension. And if you're the one with the hot label at the time and the leverage, you uh, usually win. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, Impossible. Because some, um, some, some of these labels are irreplaceable. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, Alan, let, the, let them go. Let them go. Fuck them. You know, they'll, they'll see the error in their ways and they'll, they'll, they'll regret it. Mm-hmm. We'll just get another road. We'll find another roadrunner. And I would say, you can't find another roadrunner. <laughs> <laughs> there's no other road runner. This mm. is like a pioneer legendary record label with some of the most important bands and, you know, in, in, you know, some of the most important bands in rock. So, yeah, you know, so yeah. we always have to balance that, you know, um, we don't own our content. The label could leave at the end of the day. If we do a poor job, shame on us, the label leaves. Then we do a great job and we have great success and then they get lured by a more lucrative offer. So we lose that way too. So we o- there's always that tension at the end of a, of a when a contract uh, period expires to make that new deal happen and, yeah. and make sure that the label continues for another two years, three years. You so know, in the case of Roadrunner, they, you know, they were able to parlay it into a, a huge deal at the end of the day and sold their company. So... I mean, that's a good way to keep it all together, right? I mean, if you're Warner Music, you know, they they realize that, wait, wait a minute, we, we're not going to make a distribution deal with Case. We're going to buy the company. Mm-hmm. So they never could leave. But we never had the money <laughs> to do that stuff. So let, let's pretend I'm a five-year-old. Let's, let's try and, from the start, let's, if you can try and explain to me the life cycle of a product or an album from – Case walking in and saying, hey, I've got this great band. It's called Sepultura. We've got this arrangement. Presumably, it all starts with, <clears throat> as you say, this deal, a, a cyclical th- two or three-year deal. I take it the terms of those deals are... We well, the wrote, deal... You know, go on, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, um, so the, I, I imagine the deal would be we Roadrunner will ex- exclusively distribute through you in this particular territory through all our products. Here's our forecast for the next six months. We've got four albums coming out. We've got two reissues. And then you go, great, we can get this out to get so many units out, blah, 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 blah. Would it typically be priced at a certain point at that point, like from inception? 
of this particular product hitting your warehouse? And you'd go, okay, we'll sell uh, these for 15. Price points were always determined by the label. Price points were generally all over the place. You know, there was a basic, you know, I don't remember what the prices were back then. You know, they generally, uh, you know, a CD was, um, oh God, what was this? You know, a CD, you'd be priced, you know, $20. Uh, I think uh, CDs were new at the time, so they were expensive. And then uh, vinyl albums were cheaper, but then everything, all the prices changed. You know, the, the label would come in with an act, um, the and the level of priority would be determined right away we would see immediately is this how important a band is this to roadrunner mm-hmm. if you know if sepultura if they if monty signed sepultura and they or maybe they had a hard fought battle to sign sepultura so they realized that they have something very hot i mean road anything on roadrunner it was a priority for us because mm-hmm. um everybody was aware of the brand and generally their taste was, you know, impeccable in terms of, you know, the bands they chose. Not every band had the same level of priority. So they, some bands would come in. Sepultura is a good example of one. It was a huge priority. This band out of Brazil is going to be the next Metallica. And this guy, who's the leader of the band? I remember is um, Max. Max. Max Cavalera. Yeah. So they thought that this band was very important. So they would be more aggressive on marketing They'd be more aggressive on pricing and discounts and deals and incentives to get more product out in the marketplace because they just knew that this band was going to happen. Plus, you know, they already know that the band's going to be here to tour, so they'll be able to support the uh, the release that way. So the the marketing of the of a new release from the point of being introduced to it, driven by the label, and it's driven by um, the, the 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 you know the uh, the sought afterness of the band, the deal that they made with the band, the long-term nature of that deal, uh, the band's, uh, uh, you know, desire to break in America and come to live here with us, you know, and, and tour. And once we got a feel for their entire marketing scheme for the year, mm-hmm. that determined the, um, you know, how aggressively we went out with it. And, you know, not every band had that same, aggressive uh you know uh thing you know i um i remember seeing going to a show at roseland it was their hot new signing this is like this is like this is a very different way of looking was their hot new signing cold chamber cold chamber was going to be their big big act for the year Second on the bill was Machine Head because they were like, you know, they're the, you know, they're the durable roadrunner band does everything that they said. Machine Head was a very solid seller. And the opening act was something brand new that they were excited about, but they just didn't know how to, how to go about breaking it because they wore masks and they had a different, more aggressive kind of music and some people loved it, but some people didn't love it. And of course, that was Slipknot. So you know, out of the, that, so that you take those three bands that they brought to us that year. You know, Machine had the, you know, the 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 very, you know, the uh, what do you call it, the uh, venerable band that you know that always does great business. Yeah, yeah. The hot new signing, Cold Chamber, with the girl. Right, there's a girl in the band. Yeah. And that was a big thing because Smashing Pumpkins had a girl in the band. So Cold Chamber is that big signing. And then Slipknot, which was like 
let's put them on the bill because we don't know what to do with them. Well, as it turns out, right? You know, okay. As the it same. turns out, yeah. you know, it's. <laughs> but the funny thing there was, you know, when you went to the merch table, I remember that show because we all knew that Slipknot was after that show. We knew Slipknot was going to be massive because why? Because we went to the merch table and there was a line for for Machine Head. There was a line for Cold Chamber, but there was a line like str- like. Ten, five times longer for the Slipknot t-shirts and, and, and hats and so on. So we said, holy shit, mm-hmm. this band really connected. And they were great live too. And then they did that, um, remember the OzFest? <laughs> remember there was something called OzFest? No, no, no. how, how old are you? I'm 31. So I'm not, I'm not too old to know what OzFest is, but I, I'm certainly too old for it to be around the, the heyday in the late 90s. The OzFest, well, um, that's, when, that's how Slipknot broke at the OzFest. But anyway, the point is, um, well, I don't know if I answered your question, but, the, you know, it's all driven by the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Roadrunner plans for the year and, and their desire to break this band versus that band. And it doesn't always work out that way, like in the example of Slipknot, yeah. but they drive everything. So the inter- is, the thing that's fascinating me here is the fact that they're giving you, they're coming at you, is it like an annual review of what's coming up? They'd go, we've got five bands and five big yeah. releases and this is what we call the priority order. And in effect though, you wouldn't, um, how am I going to phrase this? In terms of how you could influence the sales, all you can determine is how many units go to a certain shop, right? There's no way you could oh, tell, yeah, that's it. for example, I'd, and the marketing and the PR is all on their side. So you're not doing anything other than sort of moving it around. So where, why, under, under what circumstances would you have to prioritize or what would you do differently in terms of priorities? Or is it just you have a read on the retailers so you know how many is worthwhile? You say, okay, Machine Head is a priority. Sorry, no, Cold Chamber is a priority here. You go, okay, top priority typically means 50,000 in this territory. Yeah, well, the reality is, uh, I mean, we distributors like to think they can influence, uh, y- you know, uh, demand. But the reality is, you know, all we're doing is really setting up the mo- the best odds for success within a record store by finding the best re- opportunities in store. You know, like you want to be on, right, on Spotify, okay. you want to be on the best playlists. Okay, in the re- in the world of brick and mortar retail, you want to have the best situation and we were able to because we were we had lots of influence and we had uh, you know we were that got a head start we're bigger than most indie distributors mm-hmm. we could make sure that that new album from cold chamber had the best like when you walked into the record department it was right in your face and it was on mm-hmm. sale so it made it even more enticing to uh, to buy and generally the covers you know the artwork was great and um, it just looked like something that you want to buy if you were if you were in there yeah. for a hard rock record, or you heard about the band. It was very easy to purchase. We made it very because mm-hmm. it's right in front of you. It had a very nice sale price, and and maybe we um, we advertise in the stores, whatever they had a circular, they had a newspaper when you walked in. These are the things that we're selling. You know, that was a days of real brick and mortar retail. I mean, it was, that's what, it, what you walked into the store, you get a circular, uh, a flyer, you know, yeah. a little, you know, of what's, what they think that you should buy. 
yeah so your micro engineering sort of like the actual retail space at the point where because you'll be you know you'll be saying okay we're gonna it'll be fifty thousand units across this territory and you'll be going okay well i'm gonna take ten thousand of those units and i've got 10 stores i'm gonna put them in and i know those stores really well and what's incentivizing you as a distributor in making sure you're increasing the probability of those records being sold so they come back and go alan last week you came in with a cold chamber record i now need two thousand more mate because you're making 18 percent on each one of those ten dollars right okay it seems it seems when i say out loud painfully obvious it seems like it but prior to this conversation i was like where's the handoff and where's the priority calls and what's the you know what's driving that particular activity but i think you've laid it out for me quite but, but really but but honestly what drives the activity was the band's desire to succeed the band's hard work ethic the mm. band's going on the road and playing shows all year long the band going into the local hard rock radio station and spending time with the program director and and you know and doing an interview the and, and it's all mm-hmm. which was set up by the roadrunner marketing team and sales team um yeah. again that you know they were they, have you ever had- they, they had an advantage because they have again like a tremendous head start you know everybody know knew of Roadrunner and Megaforce had a had what had a, had an advantage because you know Mega Megaforce was a very reliable brand, right? Like you know if you buy um, I don't know if you buy a Mercedes Benz that's a reliable brand, right? You know that car is probably going to be better than a you know a, a Chevrolet brand. So Roadrunner had that kind yeah. of status. So they you know um, so they all they you know typically they signed the better bands, right? Let's start from that point of view that would be in all the magazines, right? And uh, they'd have a better press department, so they'd be able to get into those magazines. And then they did the tour, and they had the best tours with the best venues. You know, it's it's really the label. What we did was follow the lead of the record label by listening yeah. to their plan for the, this Cold Chamber release mm-hmm. and then letting our retail partners know that all the amazing stuff that's going to be going on with this record that we're going to put in your store – so now, store, take. Do we think you should take this many, and put it in this program? So what we controlled was the visibility in record stores, which was the primary way people consume music, was not on the radio because yeah. that was free. But I'm, what I'm talking about, the way people consume music, like cause people consume music now by Spotify and Apple. I get it, but the way people consume music. So we controlled the consumption by placing it in those re. We had it in the best, like so-called Spotify playlists at those retailers. Yeah, would there ever be a band or something where, where say, Case comes in and goes, "This band of the shit. This is top priority." And you'd go, "Lads, I'm not messing around here. Order thirty thousand, not fifty. These these aren't gonna put that go as as far as you think they're gonna go." Did you ever have that kind of conversation? With uh, them? No. Or was it always like, rare, well, rare, say, um, say, like, that's an uncomfortable conversation. And, and generally, it goes back to picking the labels that have realistic expectations. Roadrunner was very good at knowing its market, knowing, knowing the, the value of the bands, knowing what it's worth in the marketplace, and never, rarely made a mistake. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, Case, you know, Case, was, uh, Case had, had good people always. All those people that worked there, Doug Keogh, Monty, Jonas, Bob Johnson. Wow. Psycho, Mark Abramson. <laughs> Are you interviewing these people? Um, 
to an extent um because i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of crawling through this history and yeah. the minute in terms of like the personnel i'm, I'm towards the late 80s early 90s at the minute yeah but, doug um, keogh doug keogh is a great person i mean he knows it all he knows absolutely everything but the problem is I've been using this analogy rather extensively, but if Gandalf gave the ring straight to the Eagles, it would have been a shit book. You know what I mean? It, it, so I'm, I'm quite keen to, to do the long-form conversations with people like yourself, really understand the, um, the connecting the dots intimately, slowly, yeah, yeah. And yeah, with it. the primary sources. Otherwise, it would be, okay, Monty, day one, what you're doing, day two, what you're doing, it wouldn't be a very compelling story. And I don't think Roadrunner deserves a trivial glance as to why it's worthwhile. I think it deserves a very, very in-depth exploration as to why it did what it did because it's not been done since to the same extent. And for metalheads like me, I think we're screaming for a brand like that to do what it did again. I'm screaming for some kind of um, associative uh, activity with a brand. Like when I when I first heard Trivium, one of my favorite bands of all time, little red logo in the bottom right, that's what I knew was was a thing. You know what I mean? As we've alluded to, there's quite a lot of incestuous personnel across all these companies, especially in New York at the time. Actually, would it not have been a, a conflict of interest on, on for you guys? Because Combat was your in-house property. We'd have to manage the expectations uh, for the two guys. Uh, I'm going on record by saying we didn't push our own repertoire harder than others. I mean, the rank and file of the company didn't care. They, yeah, you know, yeah. they didn't know every everything that we owned and everything we didn't own. You know, everything was on, you know, everything was um, buttoned up. Yes. You know, the statements were accurate. No, there was no foul, you know, there was no dubious anything. But what, what was going on at that time, because independent distributors were paid last from the record stores and the record yep. chain stores. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we never had enough money to pay everybody on time what they were owed. Mm-hmm. So we had to make decisions on how to parcel out the money yep. uh, at, at the time of uh, the money was due. Mm-hmm. Right. We wanted to pay everybody. We wanted to pay everybody on time what was due, but we couldn't. We didn't have the money. So, of course, at the time, those decisions to who to pay, when to pay, how much to pay, a lot of that came down to the owned content first. But it is, you know, it's an issue for distributors. Yeah. But it's yeah. an issue for if you're Sony also. I mean, Sony owns RCA, Epic, and Columbia, mm-hmm. right? But they distribute other labels. Mm-hmm. So... um so they're not pushing their own content more than the stuff that they just distribute. Mm. I'm just saying that um, it ran into problems when it came to payment time. Like yeah. it might, you know, it might be the case where Combat got paid first. Mm-hmm. But it, it wasn't. It wasn't by design, as you're saying. You wouldn't. You, we, we, you know, uh, it wasn't. It, it wasn't the case of pushing their records harder. Behind the scenes, there were certain things that 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 are the, our own content benefited from by being an owned label. Yeah, but yeah. It wasn't, a, it, wasn't, it wasn't. It wasn't the upfront, you know, pushing and mm-hmm. um, and being more creative. Right. I see. Anyway, go ahead. Um, two more questions. Um, so apparently, Case gave you an incentive with typo negatives, bloody kisses. He said, "If this album goes gold, we're going to fly you over to Amsterdam. We're going to have a big weekend." What do well, you remember from you that know, weekend? 
Well, I'm going to tell you something that I'm not going to be able to help you all that much because, um, you know, Doug Keogh and I uh, made a pact. And, and Doug, Doug and I, I said to Doug, we were, we were very close. I said, Doug, are you, going to, uh, are you going on the plane with everybody? He said, no, you're not going, are you, Alan? That's just for, like, the kids, you know. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, I'm a kid. Uh, so, and, and for some reason I didn't go, I didn't take the trip, but I could tell you that that trip, uh, is is still talked about as one of the great experiences by so many of those people. There's one young lady I talked to, I still stay in touch with Laura. She works at a radio station upstate. She always mentions that trip and they, they show pictures on Facebook of that trip. And it was, uh, I, I wasn't on it, but I remember it being an exciting time for everybody and nobody and, and and everyone thought it was mind blowing the case delivered on that promise. <laughs> yeah. Has anything else like that happened prior to or since, or was that just a one off? Well, that that I um oh you know I mean I mean they were generous in it, like in sending out plaques and awards and right, okay, inviting yeah. us to parties and you know be back backstages and. Uh, um, sci- events and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, we we enjoyed a, a great relationship personally, professionally. We uh, did a lot of business together. Mm-hmm. Um, we were all saddened when. Well, that's an interesting story too. Is that is that 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 episode when Edel in Germany bought from Sony? So what year are we talking? This is ninety nine two thousand. That was a, a sad uh, episode in our uh, evolution. Uh, actually, that whole uh, you know selling of the company, mm-hmm. Sony selling the company to Edel in Germany. That was uh, uh, whose uh, MD at the time was uh, or owner was a guy named Michael Hanches, mm-hmm. and he's very well. His resume is very well documented. Yeah. Uh, he raised a fortune of money on the stock exchange, the DAX, the German DAX. Mm-hmm. Um, and his concept was to create a company much like Jive and Zamba, you know, vertical, where you could sign an artist, record the record, manufacture the record, yeah. distribute the record, promote the record, you know, and it's all under one vertical company. Yes. So you own everything along the way and, and, and that concept, because it was already underway with Jive and Samba and a guy named Clive Calder, who's a very legendary dude, um, uh, he was able to raise a lot of money. So he came to America in hopes, well, he already had a small label, really nothing much to speak of, but he had the idea of buying a distribution company like like he formed in Germany, Edel, a company like that in America. Okay. And he contacted Sony, the, the Sony uh, at uh, um uh, CFO at the time is a guy named Mel Ilberman, mm-hmm. and he just made it Mel an offer Mel couldn't refuse and bought and bought fifty percent of important record distributors at the time. Mm-hmm. So you know he inherited all those relationships, and Sony did sell him half the company. Um, so you know in that first year everything was great, and the second year it was kind of a stock market bubble, and he was unable to raise even more money, and and there was a debt that was uh, owed to uh, Sony, and he ended up losing the company uh, back to Sony. But during that period is when, as I described, you know, Case Wessels and and Michael became friends, right? 
Um, Michael was somebody a lot of people wanted to be friends with. He had lots of money to dole out. Uh, Case had a company that he was fond of. Uh, uh, he, Michael Hunches loaned him the money to buy the company Arcade. I think back then, I don't know if you've Googled it, back then that company was uh, like a compilation producer. A pretty safe bet, I think. It wasn't like anything right. in the trendy music business. And he lent him the money and, and Case... So, so when Michael got in trouble with his finances in America, uh, he called in that debt to Case. I need that money, Case, that you lent me, that you promised that you would send it, that you would pro- you would you'd pay me back. And of mm-hmm. course, there's no paperwork at the time. There was no IOUs. There was no contract to pay anything back. So, Case he, he, he didn't have the money to pay Michael. I guess he just mm-hmm. felt that you know that debt would would last much longer. He didn't have the money to. To, 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 for Michael, and Case needed to sell, needed to raise money right away, a lot of money, to pay Michael, who was going to sue him, to get that money, right. because Michael now owed, had his own debts, so Case couldn't make pay the debt, Case, right, he was threatened to be sued, so he raised the money from, where did he go after that? He went to... Um, Warner Music? Who, somebody, who gave him the money? Now, this is where I'm a little was fuzzy. It uni- was this the Universal deal? Yeah. So he got really? the money. So, well, I, I'm going to have to, well, we're going to have to research that a little bit because I don't want to make a mistake okay. here. So at the point that is, I'm making, you know, he, he, what happened was he needed the money to pay back Michael Haunches, and he got the money from a third party. So, and, so our distribution of the label ended. So Michael, huh? so the sad part of the story is Michael, who, who, who should have uh, uh, sh- should have had Case sign a document that says you can't leave. Like, you're dist- like if I give you this money to buy Arcade, you're now distributed by us in perpetuity or, you know, whatever yeah. sort of long term, uh, you know, a 10 year, you know, type of distribution. They had, they had, there was no paperwork. So Case could just walk out the door. So he got the money from another party. He, uh, based on that, he had to move his distribution out of of, uh, important records. So we lost the label at that time. Mm -hmm. So that's the story. That's the sad story there. And of course, there's another label, a rock label in the U.S., uh, Epitaph Records, where a similar, similar problem erupted. But it was, but, you know, dealing with Roadrunner at the time, that was a, a very sad episode, you know following all the success we've had together to lose that label because of, you know, not having the right paperwork or, or, or this uh, was, um, was something that was very disappointing. It was, that, it was something that was departed from your relationship and it wasn't necessarily something which yeah, I mean, I, you know, it I feels like an yeah, empty platitude to say that it was out of your control, but it was, it was like, this is your relationship and this is where the problem was over there. Yeah, right. and, and but that's how. It, but, that, but that's the ending. That's the, that's the finale of the story. That's how the label left us, and um, and then then of course it, it it ended up with Warner Music, who paid, you know, a fortune to to buy the company from the Universal deal, hmm. right? And that you know, and I, yeah, I, I mean, quite, yeah, and I noticed a question in there as well is that uh, you know as Case flirting now with um, with the major labels you know, who are always looking for yes. greater success and, you know, why are you, um, why are you, so, you know, why are you sticking so closely to the hard rock formula? Why don't we try some things that, you know, where the, where the, where the stakes are higher, where we could have bigger, grander success and have more gold and platinum records. 
they hired an A&R guy at the time named Ron Berman. Yes. It was around that time that Ron, uh, you know, who, who was a great, very good A&R guy. Great A&R guy. Ron is, Ron is awesome guy. He now runs a label mm-hmm. called um, Mascot. Mascot. With um, USA, Mascot label. Ed Von Zell. Yes. Yeah, that's Ed's company. Right. So Ron, you know, became, was the A&R guy at Roadrunner for like 15 years. And he signed, of course, the Canadian band Nickelback. Right. So now Nickelback is released via Roadrunner and it becomes the biggest thing in the, ever at Roadrunner, which uh, is sometimes has a, could have a negative effect because what happens is that now the A&R point of view becomes a little bit more like, whoa, wait a minute, this Nickelback, let's, let's, let's see if we can sign a few more like that. So I think they got, you know, I think they went. I think it's that, it's that one. one they went down that road. Well, well, there's two things there. Yeah, yeah they yeah, went I down mean, that road a little things bit. I said, which were poignant. Um, the first of all, the pro, first of all, the dream was attained because I think Case's ambition the entire time was to have a number one single in the U.S. and that was with Nickelback's "How You Remind Me." Great, everyone's happy. Exactly the second right. thing that he mentioned was it is it is kind of a death knell because once you go platinum. Then, especially if you're an independent label, you got 2001 Silver Side Up. The returns are flowing in. Everything's the PNL um, books are looking very black and lovely. 2002 rolls around, and Nickelback aren't producing an album. All of a sudden, when you compare those two years, it looks like Roadrunner's made no money. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, so it yeah, kind of yeah. it fudges the numbers a bit, and it, it it disrupts the expectation of the brand, and it disrupts the expectation of the returns. Um, you, you got it. we all like success and we all like to see it. You got it right. Sorry, go you got it. You very, very good. Now, uh, w- what happened in the case of Nickelback was it wasn't platinum. It was five times platinum. It was, uh, in, it was sales that were um, off the radar <laughs> map, so to speak. So this really mm-hmm. can disrupt your whole, uh, well, um, they came out of it, uh, you know, a case came out of it uh, in good shape and that's for sure. And, um, right. you know, my friends that worked at the label, you know, became, um, you know, made, you know, they made careers, you know, from that and they got to keep, keep going and yeah. Yeah. And, um, have, so let's, um, change their life. Let, yeah, man. I mean, it, yeah, it changed the, it kept the lights on at the, the label for a while. So let's right. go back in time. Um, let me try and set the scene again. So Roadrunner are distributing through you guys in the late eighties. Um, uh, how's the relationship? It's not coming from licenses and from some things are being licensed from Roadrunner to say Megaforce and then distributed through you, but you do have a relationship with Roadrunner where you are distributing their records and man, you said you were manufacturing them as well because getting their product overseas costs too much. So there is a, a, a relationship there. Yeah. So, so the, the they, first, yeah, the first, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna, actually, I was going to lead into a question. So if you want to summarize what I was saying there. No, well, of course, the business decisions at Roadrunner at the time were, you know, just sending finished product over from, um, from Amsterdam worked at that, the early, those early days when the quantities weren't large. Mm-hmm. When the quantities start to get large and the cost of uh, delivering these uh, finished products from uh, uh, Amsterdam were got, getting expensive, decision was made to manufacture them in the U.S., Right. Right. It was still without an official roadrunner office. 
But mm-hmm. now the business started to really grow beyond what the economics of um, the, the business grew to the point where um, now we saw a real upside if we moved, where if it was able to evolve into more of a, a staff, a team, an office, uh, you know, the ability to not just manufacture, sell, and distribute, but actually sign local talent, um, promote and market local talent locally. So that's where the decision was made to open up the office, the official Roadrunner office. And I think that's where. Yeah, that's where this is going. Yeah. The, the decision was monumental for Roadrunner because the artists demanded that there, there be an office in their home territory. So now they're not just signing artists from all over the world. They're signing USA artists, U.S.-based artists. USA-based artists want to have a USA label home right? that they're comfortable with, with a staff that's you know tuned into what's important to them and, and, and a staff that is, uh, you know, can articulate it to, to a larger uh, you know, to media. And I think it, the, the, the competitive nature of what we were doing there reached the point where they needed to ha- fund, open and fund the, uh, their own office and have their own staff to be, be more competitive in the A&R uh, circles that they traveled in. Okay. So was, right. was the I mean, arrangement... That's not the only reason. I'm sure there's a financial reason, tax yeah. reasons. There's so many other th- reasons why. You know, if they bought a building in New York, they can write that off. I mean, it's... Mm-hmm. The financial implications of that I can't comment on, but there's probably some really good reasons to open up an office in New York for tax purposes that mm-hmm. <laughs> probably, you know, uh, compel them to do it as well. To mm-hmm. me, it's all about case and the team being more competitive with other labels that are signing hard rock bands. Major major record companies who had, um, you know, who are now signing bands, you know, the black Sabbaths and Judas priests and ACDCs, you know, are not underground bands anymore. Now, you know, those bands are like the most influential and Mm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's now hard rock and heavy metal is maturing. So, big businesses is involved in it. So in order for Roadrunner to compete, they had to open up an office and welcome in the manager of the band and the band. Let's show you, let me show you our office. Let me, let me introduce you to our head of marketing and our team to make you more comfortable about signing with us than signing with Epic. Plus, I mean, if, if you buy a Roadrunner CD in the States, that's great. Does, I wonder how it's reported. Does it mean that Roadrunner has market share in the U S or is it Roadrunner as an Amsterdam company have international? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going down the road. I don't know. I, I don't think the market, see, the market share wasn't that important back then. Mm. I mean, it wasn't, but, but to, not to the degree there that it is now, where I think, um, you know, the market share also has other implications in, in terms of, um, you know, dealing with the digital service providers, dealing with the Apples and the Spotify's and all. Yeah. yeah. Market share has a plays a much much bigger uh, has a much bigger difference, and, you know. And being number one is you know is is very attractive to an mm. artist manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I think the reasons why the office opened there is number one to be more competitive uh, mm. to sign the best bands, and certainly number two was um, uh, had to be you know must be in the financial uh, you know idea of of having their team here was um, more. Uh, was more comfortable for them yeah. 
it's a big expense, but certainly they had it offset by, you know, the business growth. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a finance guy, so I can't comment on that, but I think you, the, answer, the answer lies within all, all of those. The amalgamation of those parameters. Parameters. Do you have any memories of that first iteration of the, the Roadrunner office? It was Steve Ricardo and Holly Lane, and those are the two people for about, I think it was about nine months. Oh, they God. were like the go-to people. <laughs> oh, my. You, may, you beat me to that. I mean, um, I have great memories of the Roadrunner office when it became Doug Keogh, Jonas Knoxon, Monty Connor, Mark Abramson, their promotion guy. You know, Case Wessels every two or two months or so would, would, would stop by. And legendary Christmas parties. I mean, legendary, I, I mean, that's a whole segment in itself, right? Their parties, the, uh, the guests, the hijinks uh, was, um, was memorable. Uh, you know, I wasn't around, I was not a nice guy. I wasn't like a crazy, crazy one, but... Um, hmm. Those parties were like like a very hot ticket to 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 get into, really, and crowded and and music. You know, just imagine hundreds of heavy headbangers in a room, and you know, very attractive women and drugs, and it was it was pretty wild wild stuff. The the, yeah. the legendary Christmas parties is what I what I'll leave you with. So uh, you know, certainly it's. Ask that question uh, of of people familiar, and they'll they'll give you some good stories. I, w- I wish I had time. them for you. I don't really have anything juicy. Let's protect the innocent on on this. On yeah, this no, those early days of Roadrunner started for me, so I don't know when that team came together, what the exact years were, but um, we were very close. The you know the, we were very close. You know those that, that team of people and me pers- personally with those team was very close. We yeah. really got along well. Yeah. Let's let's move on to oh um oh man and I almost forgot this I nearly skipped this one um, can you tell Wally Van Middendorp he was uh, the VP of international in the two thousands but back in the eighties he also worked at the Amsterdam office before he moved on to different ventures another name I I didn't know him that well I was I was watching your video of of him but I didn't I know that name but I didn't I never mixed it up with him very rarely. So you'll you'll if you've seen that interview I did with him, you'll know that he had a, a nearly traumatic experience driving up to your office, or your your site, your warehouse, um, in the eighties. Ah. Said it wasn't in a very nice neighborhood. Can you elaborate on perhaps no, what he was, was referring in, um, to? Well, not in a very nice neighborhood. It was put, putting it putting it mildly. I um, well, you know, we 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 come. We've evolved as a company, being importers of music and finding it, uh, finding it, uh, y- y- you know, that finding that being close to the airport always had, we always had an advantage because, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the products, the music would come off the plane and, mm-hmm. you know, quickly it would be in our office and <laughs> we'd be the first one in all of America with a hot new, whatever was the hot new import at the time. So we, I think as part of our DNA, we always felt that being near an airport was, um, was important to us. And of course, being near the airport is, is really not like the posh neighborhoods surrounding the airport. It's more of like, um, you know, it's like kind of freight container play, you know, hubs and, and, uh, 
industrial parks and um and then further getting toward Manhattan, you know, be like more lower income type of housing and so on. And and we this was our third office that was near the airport. So, you know, okay. we all so it's not like um we were comfortable in that neighborhood, you know, so I think if you're Wally Middendorf coming from a more posh neighborhood coming out to see us, you're going in the opposite direction. Generally, people would come to New York and go to Manhattan, New York City to, yeah, yeah. to have a meeting. Here you're coming into, you know, and you're just being dropped off right next to the airport in some, uh, you know, very um, dangerous neighborhood at the time. Yeah, maybe just one of the crime, expectations. Crime at the, crime at the time in New York was a little off the uh, – off, off the hinges. <laughs> Did you ever have any trouble that, at that site at that time? Because obviously, it's very famous now. It's it's, it's quite um, it's quite adventurously depicted New York at that time. Did you ever come to work yeah. one morning and see someone with a load of vinyls running out the back door? Oh, worse than that. I'll give you. I'll give you. Uh, now I'll, I'll recite this story because I know it still well. Uh, but I was I was on vacation during this week. But but, y- y- you know, because we were so far away from, you know, sort of like um, not civilization, but so, we were far away from, let's say, a bank, y- yep. you know, and, and the kids had to um, we didn't have direct deposit at the time. So in order to get paid, everybody at lunchtime with their paychecks would go to the bank and cash their checks. This is, you know, this is a long time ago. The modern technology hasn't didn't hadn't caught up to us at that time. So uh, we had, um, we'd go to the bank and then kids, you know, people would be out or they'd just smoke a joint and they'd wander back in. So people would be out, staff would be out sometimes, you know, much longer than a typical lunch break to cash their checks and have their lunch. So um, somebody with a bright idea says, you know what, what we should do is get a cash checking truck or check cashing truck to come to our office and pull into the, the loading bay, close the doors, and, and, and uh, you know, the truck's loaded with cash, and all the kids could walk up to the truck and with their pay stubs and cash their check, like a check cashing, you know, yeah. storefront, right? Yeah. I, I mean, they still exist, but this is how we cashed our checks. So <laughs> you, could, you could guess what's the, the, the next story. One day, uh, the, the check cashing truck pulls into the, into the loading dock, the door comes down, so now we're sealed from the outside world. And, you know, three or four gunmen come in. Oh, no. And we're just like, you know, we're, you know, we're kids. And, you know, what do we, you know, we're like, um, most of us are just nice, you know, upbringings and, and so on. And everybody hits the floor. Hands, you know, lay on the floor, heads down asses up just lay there don't don't move if you move and of course they robbed the truck of all their cash mm-hmm. and escaped you know somebody called 91 you know the emergency you know the cops were on the scene while the the, the robbers were in the building mm-hmm. but certainly they didn't want to confront the robbers with guns and you know and create a scene so eventually they were caught of course mm-hmm. but it was an experience that, that no one will ever forget was the robbery of the of the uh, IRD important record distributors check cashing truck, because <laughs> everybody was impacted. It's just something you'll never get out of your mind for the rest of your life. Is being yeah. held up at gunpoint. Wow. I mean, that was you know that wasn't a typical story, but that's the one that that you know really if it if it's not told, um, you know need, needs to be uh, chronicled in some way. So. Um, but, you know, but generally speaking, you know, it, it, the hindrance was that we couldn't hire the best people because the best 
the best staffers didn't want to go out to Jamaica, Queens, New York, you know, 30 miles away from where the hub of the music industry existed to work in the music industry. It was just a pain in the ass. So we eventually, when Sony bought the company, we eventually had to move to uh, the city just to, you know, just so we could uh, retain our, our existing staff mm-hmm. and add smart staff because the music industry didn't exist by the airport. The music industry existed in um, the city. Right. In the city. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, all that has changed now. Everybody works from home and uh, very grateful to be able to work from home. So it could be anywhere. But, um, you know, those were those were those were crazy days. And that's how things were done. Yeah, I just yeah. had like a Bonnie and Clyde romantic vision in my head. Someone stuffing their car full of King Diamond records and heading down to Mexico. Um, I was, it was different, but, but you're right. It was a very, um, you know, very, very uh, notorious neighborhood because, you know, a lot of the rappers at the time that were successful, LL Cool J, Run DMC, you know, they come from that, you know, that, that vicinity where, where our office was and, you know, Jamaica, Queens, New York, very, became a very legendary music, you, you know, um, um, you know, center, creative creators coming from that inner city, you know, that's, you know, rap music, of course, evolved, you know, from the idea of how do you, you know, you're an inner city kid, mm-hmm. how do you escape your, 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 your uh, fate of, you know, low income and poverty and education, you know, you're a boxer, you're, you play basketball and that's your escape. Mm-hmm. But now with no rap became the escape. Yeah. You see now from the inner cities, they're the best rappers, you know, you can point to, you know, in many, in many cases coming from that type of environment yeah. and that type of socioeconomic kind of, um, you know, so a lot of the rappers came from that neighborhood that we worked in. Um, but, but it all, you know, I'm, I'm just relating it to the fact that that neighborhood was um, rough. It was rough. Not, I mean, I'm not saying all rappers are rough, but I'm just saying that the, the neighborhood itself was, uh, um, you know, it had, it had a reputation so potent. Repu- you know, just let's leave it at that. It had a reputation. Yeah, yeah. Um, we discussed last week um, when the label would communicate with you an overall strategy, perhaps maybe on a yearly basis, saying, "Okay, these are the records we want to push." These are the allocated budgets for you to go out to the territories and make sure there's a Peter Steel cut out on every corner was there ever a point where because in the early 90s they diversify massively they move away from hard rock and metal and and they move into like alternative rock and harry abrams would bring like the rap game and the hip-hop stuff um was that problematic from your perspective because you guys professed to do the hard rock and metal thing so did you ever think oh we don't really know how to push dog eat dog and blue mountain was that ever an issue (laughs) um well, we, you know, as distributors, we never thought it was our, um, it wasn't our role to tell them, you know, you should sign more of this and less of that. And, you know, this is working and that's really not working, you know, so, and Roadrunner was such a huge piece of business for us. You know, Roadrunner was one of our top billing labels and, you know, got to the point where, um, you know, whatever they did that was ex- slightly left of what the center um, whether it worked or not, it didn't really have a big impact on, you know, the overall business of, of right, uh, okay. their catalog sales mm-hmm. and their, uh, their current and active roster. 
and 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 the and the fact remains that heavy metal just never it, it just kept getting bigger and 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 the bands you, you know had, grew, had bigger audiences and and now you have the festivals the Ozfests and the and the things where um you know the the, the music just kept getting grow bigger so as much as they experimented on one hand on the other hand their hard rock uh center of musical center of gravity kept growing as well so whatever happened here the the music never they never took their eye off the ball is what i mean you know right, okay. so it wasn't yeah. exactly like a huge risk of the business to diversify because you know the the core was still there was yeah. still right but 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 you know they they react they you know what you were talking about is reacting to where music was headed at the time and they wanted to be relevant you know and not just one you know one dimensional Hmm. So they, you know, they, they took some stabs elsewhere in alternative rock or more like, you know, roots rock, Americana rock. I mean, all, always rock, right? I don't think hmm. they, you know, they took their eyes too, too far off the ball. There's um, some gangster rap in there. There's a bit. I'm just trying to think Roadrunner and rap. What, what, like, give me one. Okay. Bear with me. You see one, one of the, one of the, uh, the privileges I've had to, uh, encumber myself with with this project was literally going through discogs at all the records I've ever put out and try and figure out. <clears throat> um, yeah, I'm sure they tried one. I mean, you know, combat. Marlboro Kings. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, you had, you know, certainly you had that period of like, you know, where hip hop and like Fishbone and that you, you were rock and rap were fusing together. There might, yes. You might have something like that going on. There's Les uh, Ragamins, which is French funk. Okay. Um, there's my gangster rap. There was some, some gangster rap kicking about. There was Japanese ska through yeah. Kimuri. Rap Rockman shoots, shooty, Shooty's Groove. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, well, you know, we we at the time at Combat uh, and Relativity, we had started a label called In Effect, In Effect Records. And, and um, In Effect Records was... Um, Howie Abrams, Howie Abrams and Steve Martin, you know, at the time I, when, when in effect got off the ground, uh, we wanted it to be a diverse, a hard rock label, a punk rock, hardcore punk rock label, but we didn't, but we also were hip hop fans and we were, uh, you know, funk rock fans at the time. They were bands like living color. That was like the coolest shit in the world. So, you know, we, we had a certain, a passion for, you know, for rap and rock and all the different sort of things that they mm -hmm. go on there. That was really cool at the time. So we had a band called 24 seven spies. And then we had a band called scatterbrain that tried to, um, mingle the, um, the genres at the time. You had sick of it all, didn't you? Yeah. That's, um, Howie Abrams is responsible for me and in, in general, right? Cause once he signed bowling for soup, in, when he was with Jive. Well, I'm super like the first rock band I was into. And Sick of It All's front of house engineer is the guy that taught me how to do be a monitor engineer. So it's all down to Howie. Those threads all lead to Howie. Yeah, well, Howie, Howie and I became very good friends. And uh, we, we all had a um, an affinity for this kind of straight-edged, hardcore music at the time. There was a label at the time that we loved called Revelation Records. Right. Revelation Records had a band called Youth of Today, mm -hmm. and they were like a, they were the rage. They were they were over at Caroline. We didn't have them, so we were like jealous. Mm -hmm. And uh, but we had signed bands like we had signed Agnostic Front, you know, which yes. is kind of in that in that mold also. 
So the funny story is about in effect, which is a lot of people don't realize this. Howie has his own version of this, but this is the real story. Is um, and I I got along with Howie. We just had a good musical thing going on, right? Sure. Steve Martin, who was the third guy at in effect at that time, was the rhythm guitar player for Agnostic Front. Steve Martin was a writer. He did album reviews for a local newspaper. He was a guitar player at Agnostic Front and um, never met him before. And Howie and, and I, and we liked Agnostic We knew Roger, the front man of Agnostic Front, you know, he borrowed money from us. He, he was always in trouble. And mm-hmm. I remember going with him to the bank, taking out money to give him. Because, <laughs> you know... And his brother was Freddie, who had the band Madball. That's a whole other story. Anyway, so um, we have a band called Agnostic Front. They're on the label Combat. And they're very unhappy because the label Combat at the time was much more catering to the Dark Angels and Possessed and the really hard, heavy metal bands instead of Agnostic Front, mm-hmm. where they felt that they're getting, um, they're not getting the right... Uh, uh, attention. Yep. So the band wants to confront us and say, listen, we want off this label. You're not treating us right. We're not a combat band. We're like a straight edge band. We don't, we don't feel good on combat. So we have a meeting is set up between the boss, Barry Cobrin and myself and Howie, who's the, you know, kind of the mediator at the meeting. We think that Roger and Vinny stigma, the guitar player are going to do all the talking because they're the leaders of the band and they're going to explain exactly why the, the label is the wrong place for them to be at this time in their career. We start the meeting. It was a guy named Steve Martin who did all the talking mm-hmm. on behalf of the band, articulated why the band didn't belong on the label so perfectly. I mean, he just was brilliant, did a, like a speech about why Agnostic Front and Combat are not, not a, a good fit. Mm-hmm. After the meeting, we said, thank you. Appreciate the, the, the meeting. Thanks for coming out. I looked at everybody and I said, shit, we got to hire that guy. That guy was unbelievable. <laughs> like how he brought that, that whole, you know, you know, his whole argument to life and explained it in such passion. Mm-hmm. We got to hire him to do something at the company. And everybody looked at me. Yeah. Yeah. Alan's right. But what, what does he do anyway? So the point was that, that and that was really the, the you know, the, um, the reason why a, a new imprint needed to be created was mm-hmm. really for agnostic front to be comfortable because they were right. We needed something that where there were bands more like-minded mm-hmm. and uh, we, we said, we got to start a new label. And um, me, I was more of a senior guy there. So, I, you know, I, I had a little bit more sway, but yeah. Howie's with me. We're now we're buddy partners and we have this vision. We're going to, we're going to steal that guy, Steve Martin, and he's going to work with us too. And uh, we can need a name for the label. And then we did this whole manifesto. We're going to call the label crush records, crush okay. art, crush records. And then uh, we did a whole press release. And then uh, at the end of the press release, it says, um, uh, and thank you, everybody. This is why we're creating this label. And the Crush Posse is in effect. That was our motto. That was our, like, you know. Oh, right. 
So, of course, the lawyers come back, Alan, we can't use the name Crush. Something came up. The, you know, we found another label called Crush that's out. You got to come up with another name. We said, oh, shit, that's, that sucks. In effect, yeah, yeah. Crush was the name. We loved it. <laughs> and we needed another name. Of course, we couldn't think of anything for a week. Mm-hmm. And then I just said, Let's, why don't we just call it In Effect Records? Mm-hmm. The Crush Posse is In Effect. There you go. <laughs> and everybody said, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So that was, and I'm sure that Howie's gonna. Howie, I think, has a totally different version of that. Anyway, so we started the label with Agnostic Front was our first act, yeah. and then we did Prong and Sick of It All, and uh, we we did a deal with Roar Cassettes, who had a Bad Brains concert, and mm. and then 24/7 Spies and Scatterbrain, Ludacris, and and a lot of it was oh, like you know, Fishbone. We, you know, our dream band was Fishbone. We love Fishbone. It was punk. It was funk. It was hardcore. It was mm. rock. It was rap. That was our thing, but anyway, so that's that. I mean, that's I don't know if you wanted to know all that, but that's the story of NFL. Oh, that's good fun. Well, that's um, all I've got. Yeah, all right. Well, it was a pleasure. Um, thank you. <laughs> See you later. Bye. 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 Bye.